All right, welcome to the conversation. Uh, interesting guest talking about Biden hypocrisy and potential corruption here. Uh, Camila DeShalas uh, joins us. She's senior reporter at Insider and wrote about the folks that are populating the Biden administration. Uh, very interested in that topic. Camila, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. No problem. So, um, you know, in the beginning of the piece, you guys talk about how, um, you know, a lot of folks were talking about. Trump's corruption and the people he put into his administration, that's a super fair point. And, uh, and his corruption was disastrous. Uh, but then there's regular old corruption, the establishment corruption, and that's back. So I call it corruption, I don't know that you called it that, but, but tell us what it is. Who is Biden hired and, and why is it relevant? A lot, it was really important to know is that a lot of Biden's political appointees who he has nominated to lead some of the biggest federal departments come from a lot of years of professional experience. Some where they worked in law firms that represented clients such as Google, big tech companies, big social media companies like Twitter. Others are coming from companies where they consulted for depending on you know some Consulted for federal pharmaceutical companies. And I think the biggest thing to note is that even though he's appointed these people, you know, they have to disclose in their financial disclosures of who they worked for, how much money they've made. And that's really big because these people, there could potentially be ethical conflicts of interest, depending that they are advising and running these federal agencies that can change federal regulations for industries that they once advised. So Camila, insiders doing really good reporting here. And every time I see one of these stories, I get a little surprised. Not because of insider, but because I just not used to mainstream media ever writing anything that's real and obvious. And so it's been obvious that that people that work inside both Republican and Democratic administrations are actually working for corporations for a long, long time, but nobody ever wrote it. So I'm surprised the reaction, or I'm curious about the reaction you got. When you were investigating this, did folks that you talked to tell you, oh, it's no big deal, this is how things are done in Washington? I think it's important to note that when these individuals are nominated, they have to disclose everything from how much they made previously in the previous year to even what stocks they currently own. And what that really shows is an in-depth look at where these individuals are coming from. Like I mean, you take Janet Yellen, who is the secretary, the treasury secretary, and she disclosed that between 2019 to 2020, she made more than 7 million in speaking fees from big tech companies like Google. And so what that does is kind of set the play of, you know, they have disclosed, okay, this is how I made in the past and what companies I've worked for. But then they also have to disclose that, you know, going forward when there is an ethical ethical conflict that they have to disclose it. And this is really for the public also to, to know this as well. And so when things do come arise where maybe she has to, you know, handle something that regards um, is in connection with Google, she has to disclose this. And so this is very important. I think a lot of people, you know, they know that Biden's uh, political appointees come from a wide averse, diverse background um, and have worked in a lot of professions. But I think it's really telling, especially where They've made their money from, and then just kind of to look ahead and note that you know they may run ethical conflicts just depending on if 
you know, the government departments that they're running as, you know, providing federal regulations that may really change the landscape of the industries that they once advised in the past. So Camille, I asked about reaction because uh, and you picked a perfect example uh, because of stories like Janet Yellen. Uh, when it was first revealed that she'd taken $7 million from giant corporations before she became Treasury Secretary, honestly, the sense I got in social media and elsewhere was that it was mainly the press that were defending her and, and yelling at critics and calling them sexist, saying, oh, just because what, a woman can't make $7 million selling out to corporations? Well, I'm sure she could and she did, but so that's, I'm, I know it's a little inside baseball, but did you get any pushback in your reporting? Because usually Washington is not happy about these kind of stories. No, I mean, what we really wanted to do is, you know, get these publicly available documents and really just look in depth into their disclosure forms, looking at everything from, you know, you even take Alejandro Mayorkas, who runs the Department of Homeland Security, and seeing, okay, what is he invested in right now, right? Like, what does his financial portfolio look like? Where has he gotten his money from? And, you know, what we found was like, okay, he worked for this law firm for a number of years, but he also advised a number of companies. And I think. The, we didn't really get as much pushback because you know we are going on publicly disclosed documents. And before, when someone is appointed, when Biden appointed these individuals, they had to disclose you know what ethical disclosure agreements, you know what may be a conflict in the future, what stocks they own, and things like that. And so we were really going off of information that is publicly available, but just really taking, you know, looking inside the document, seeing okay, what are these people invested in? What could potentially be a conflict in the future? What might be really interesting for readers to know? But then also taking a step back and seeing what the larger picture is. So what's the administration's response when you point out these conflicts of interest? Are they like, yeah, it's awesome. We work for corporations, or <laughs> they say, "Oh no, this is the best talent we could find." What's their response? And a lot of them were, you know, when Biden appointed these people, they were very upfront about their background, and early on, especially before they had to do their Senate confirmations, they had to disclose, you know, what political conflicts may arise in the future, ethical conflicts of interest may arise. So all this. Really was, I think, something that you know they have to disclose early on. I think the biggest question is down the line when they do have to make some federal regulation changes, or maybe you know, like if you take the Department of Homeland Security for example, and they have to, they are involved in a project that may involve some of the companies that Alejandro Mayorkas used to legally advise. That could run a conflict of interest. So I think it's really important just for the public to know, okay, you know, these people came after years of experience in different industries. They received money from different corporations and different companies. But now as they're a part of a federal government, and they're advising really big government departments that now they have to comply with a set of rules and regulations where there can't be conflicts of interest. And if there are, then they have to disclose it or there would actually be federally breaking a law or you know violating several laws. Um, and so, when you look at these different types of uh, potential conflicts of interest, there's a couple of categories you've mentioned here. One is what are they invested in? Uh, well, if they stand to make money personally from things, Joe Manchin is a good example of that in the Senate, not in the administration, obviously. Uh, he's personally invested in a lot of things where uh, it would be against his personal interest to vote for a higher minimum wage, 
for example, or to vote for cleaning up fossil fuels. He makes money from fossil fuels. So that's obviously one area. And then the money that they've gotten directly from corporations like Janet Yellen, you give a speech, you get tons of money, whether it's Google or the big banks, that's another area. How many lobbyists did Biden hire? I don't need, of course, an exact number, but give us a sense of it. Because that would seem to be a third area, because these folks made money by lobbying for those people and probably will do so again. And is there, and are there any other categories? I mean, it really does scale. We looked at every big federal government department and who is leading them or even in the individuals are leading smaller agencies within a bigger department. And it really did range. I mean, everything from disclosing speaking fees, consultation fees, you know, get providing legal services, even if that means providing legal services, not only to big companies like Twitter or just individuals who work in those companies. It really did skew. I mean, some of them disclosed that they're making money off of book deals, off of you know, being um, legal analyst on television shows for for big cable companies, and so you know things like that that they had to really disclose. That could still, I mean, even when you are getting paid or were paid in the past to be an analyst for a big TV network, you know, that can also be something that maybe in the future may arise if there's a case or anything like that. There may be um, that there could also be like potential um, ethical conflicts of interest. But it really does skew. I think there's not just a set number of people who, you know, um, accepted speaking fees. I, I think it really just ranged across the board. But I think most importantly, the biggest thing that we noticed is that people who took positions where there may be you know, potential conflicts of interest early on, had to disclose it in their ethics agreement. And that was something that we saw time and time again, not just in their financial disclosure forms, but also they had to sign a paper saying, you know, this may be a conflict of interest and I'm going to, you know, buy out or take back all the stocks I own or sell them just because there may be a potential conflict of interest. Right, Camille, last quick thing here. Are there any repercussions if things go badly? Like, let's say that they're supposed to recuse themselves because they have an obvious conflict of interest and they don't. What happens next, if anything? Yeah, that's a great question. This is something that Biden has said time and time again. He tried to be a part and separate himself from his former predecessor, saying that he wanted to ensure that there is no ethical conflicts of interest, especially for the people who are running his department. So this will really be a really big litmus test to ensure for his administration to make sure that the people who are running these big federal departments are really disclosing their potential conflicts of interest and making it known. I mean, this really does skew to to, I mean, a wide array of things, especially if they are seen to be in violation of this law of not disclosing sooner. Of if there is, you know, potential conflicts of interest, and this is something we're going to be monitoring very closely, especially as you know, department like the Department of Justice and who runs them, depending on what cases they take on and how early they disclose that. So this is just something that we're going to constantly monitor. This is something that Biden has said time and time and again that he wants to set himself apart from his former predecessor to be as transparent. 
transparent as possible. This is a bar that he also holds his political appointees to as well to be as transparent as possible. So well, we'll in the next four years really see if that is the case and if they do disclose early on potential conflicts of interest. Right, so Camila, we'd love to have you back on if you follow up. So I'm sure that they'll disclose because everybody in Washington thinks corruption is normal. I think that's less of an issue, the bigger issue is yeah, but what happens when there's actual conflict of interest and then they don't recuse themselves and they make decisions based on their own personal financial interest, which happens approximately every day in DC. So if if you can find those stories, which there should be a plenty, we'd love to have you back on because that that's the real deal, right? It's one thing to say, hey, I have money or I work for these people in these fields. It's another thing when you actually act upon it. Um, and then go, oh, golly gee, uh, I just happened to start a war. And uh, I, did I work for defense contractors before? Am I gonna work for them again? Well, what a funny coincidence, which almost every administration has done. Now, to be fair to Biden, he's gotten us out of a war. So that was a poor example in his case. Uh, but uh, but uh, I love that you guys are on it. Thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I think you're gonna like our next guest. Joining us is Richard Ojeda, he's retired US Army. Only 16 medals, other awards and badges on top. Former West Virginia State Senator, former favorite congressional candidate, national spokesperson for No Dem Left Behind. And now new contributor to TYT Rebel Headquarters, here comes Ojeda. Hey, what's up my brother? Um, I'm airborne, man. I'm good. Um, That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right, so um, obviously you've got a long career in the military. Uh, we're withdrawing from Afghanistan. Uh, curious about your thoughts. Um, there's on on TV. You're getting two things. One is botched exit. The other is uh, we should have stayed. We should have stayed. Um, curious your take on both. Well, first and foremost, you know I, I commend. President Biden for taking the step to end a forever war that has done nothing but you know flood money into the pockets of Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Halliburton, and Brown and Root. You know I don't think there was ever going to be an easy way to to get out of Afghanistan, and you know everybody wants to sit and scream about pulling out, but the truth is, is we could have never known that 300,000 Afghan troops and over 100,000 Afghan police officers that we trained and equipped would literally lay down without a fight. You know, we thought, you know, with the Taliban numbering around 80,000, we thought that the force that we created would be sufficient to absolutely deal with the Taliban. And obviously, nobody knew that you know the president of Afghanistan would load vehicles and helicopters up with cash and leave like a thief in the night. You know that's the type of of situation that you have in Afghanistan, and it's devastating. But at the end of the day, you know, I think that over the past few years, the we've made some mistakes concerning applications with with visas. You know, I have a interpreter that stood by my side in combat and his wife and two year old baby are in Kabul right now and they can't even get nowhere near the airport. It's packed, you know, they're probably going to be left behind. I've got a interpreter that is trying to get to the airport because he has a seat on a plane, but he can't get nowhere near the airport. 
And I fear that these people are going to be left behind. And you know, their families are going to be left behind. Uh, it breaks my heart to see this. Uh, it breaks my heart to know that we lost soldiers over there. And how do you look at their families and say, you know, we got nothing out of it? But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we knew that the Republicans and Fox News are going to be critical of Joe Biden making this decision. You know, they were critical over Osama bin Laden. No, excuse me, I'm sorry. They were critical over, I'm sorry, President Obama when President Obama basically, you know, freed five Taliban fighters for the one American prisoner. You know, they want to scream and, and say that he did the wrong thing there. But yet nobody is speaking up about 2018 when Donald Trump released the co-founder of the Taliban who is now getting ready to be the president of Afghanistan and 5,000 Taliban fighters that we got nothing for. So the double standard is really sickening that we see. But at the end of the day, we've made mistakes. I kind of wish we would have said we're leaving on this day and for the next six months, we're going to be doing everything in our power to evacuate interpreters and their families, working with other countries to be able to open up their their borders so that we can also let them take refugees. I believe I wish we would have did that, but once again, we had no clue that it was going to be like this, and we were going to find ourselves with no time. We thought that 300,000 soldiers and 150,000 police officers were going to be able to secure things while we pulled out properly. So Richard, remind me, how many tours did you do in Afghanistan? I just did one year in Afghanistan. I got uh, I got I got three OIF, which two of them were combat, and then one in Afghanistan. And so um, you mentioned your interpreter. Uh, so do you stay in touch with those guys, and how do you guys stay in touch? And do do Bel- most folks who went to go serve there stay in touch with the folks uh, that are in in country now that are Afghan citizens? Yeah, I mean, you know, Facebook. I mean, they use Facebook. Uh, I get phone calls from them. You know, I've got interpreters. I've been fortunate. You know, I've worked very hard for 11 years. I cannot tell you how many letters that I've written. In the last two weeks, I've probably written 30 letters to people all over the world trying to find access for these interpreters and their families. You know, five of my interpreters are right now in America, and all five of them are doing phenomenal. One graduated from Ohio State and is an electrical engineer. One of them has just purchased his second tractor trailer and does long haul trucking and is now providing an American with a job driving that second truck. I mean, you know, they're all doing phenomenal. And and I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out here. For four years, my interpreter in Afghanistan, I mean, who is now in Arizona. We've been writing letters to try to get his wife and his baby to America. And they have been denied every time in the past four years, four years. Who, who denies a wife and a child for somebody who stood by our side in combat? You know, I don't know, you know if Stephen Miller was a part of this. But somebody made this process to be almost impossible to help these people. And that's what's, what's, that's what's taking place. And it's absolutely brutal because you know what? Even when I'm speaking to these interpreters that are in America, you know, they're, they're happy that they're here. But their parents, their wives, some of their children are still over there. And right now, there's a big possibility 
that they're not gonna make it. So Richard, sometimes neoconservatives use you guys as props in a sense because they say, "Oh, you're gonna waste their efforts over there and they lost good men, good colleagues fighting this war. And if we leave and the Taliban take over, you're saying it was for nothing. And so it's an insult to the troops. How do you respond to that? Now that, that angers me. You know, I'm gonna tell you right now, if we were gonna, if we were gonna pull out of Afghanistan, we should have did it in May of 2011 when we killed Osama bin Laden. You know, I had just landed in Bagram. I had just been home 15 days because you get the, the R&R when you're in combat. I landed in Bagram and was waiting for a helicopter to take me to my combat outpost. And a guy walked up to me and he says, did you hear? We got him last night. And I said, who? He said, Osama bin Laden. And the first thing I said is, well, when are we going home? But we didn't, we stayed for another 10 years. And the reason why is because of this, because of money. You know, at the end of the day, we could have we could stay in Afghanistan for another five years, spend another trillion dollars, lose another 2000 soldiers and send another million people home, missing arms and legs and struggling with PTSD. You know, I'm, I'm angered because I know that the taxpayers of the United States of America are paying for my for my needs at the Veterans Administration Hospital. And you know what? They shouldn't have to pay for that. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, let those people pay for our care because we were over there for them. And that's what it really was. We were over there for them. Uh, that's some serious truth right there. Uh, that's that's exactly right, unfortunately. Now I wanna ask you about the Afghan military though. Um, so. I, you know, it's easy for me to sit in a studio and say I never believed in them, but you know, you dealt with them. So, a lot of folks, bad folks and good folks, thought that they would hold up and they didn't. So, what's your take? Why? Why? Why did they collapse immediately? First off, corruption. The corruption is as unlike anything you've ever seen. You know, I can remember when I needed to equip eight police stations with vehicles. And I ordered 146 Toyota Hilux pickup trucks and I got 40. And I made a call back because I know that they loaded up 146 Toyota Hilux pickup trucks for me and 40 showed up. When I called and I said, hey, I'm missing over 100 Toyota Hilux pickup trucks. The only thing the voice on the other end of the phone said is just reorder more. That was it, no argument, no anger, no investigation launched. You know, it was the corruption. That was a big problem. You know, you would take over, you would give these people weapons and come back two weeks later and half of them would be gone. And once again, just reorder. That was garbage. You know, uh, uh, another issue is education. Education in Afghanistan, usually when you go into a village, the teacher of all the kids in the village is the smartest kid. It's not an adult in there teaching these people for the most part. You know, they, I mean, the first police chief that I dealt with had a third grade education and was as corrupt as you could even begin to imagine. You know, corruption is a big problem. Education is a big problem. It's hard to teach people that don't have education and they don't understand your language very well to even teach them how to march in line. You know, I mean, you know, God bless the ones that really, really cared for their country and risked their lives every day. But it was really hard to deal with these people when they don't have that education. And when, 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 you know, the Taliban infiltrates them. You know, I can remember I had an interpreter who was 12 years old. His name was Naweeb. He's in New Zealand right now. And I can remember I was in a place called Dahani Saigon. And I'm talking to the police chief and surrounding me are all these police officers. And about halfway through the conversation, 
Naweeb completely froze up and wouldn't talk. And I noticed something was wrong. So I ended the conversation, put Naweeb in a truck and I drove about a mile down the road and stopped. And then I looked at him and I said, Naweeb, what happened? Because when I'm talking to somebody, I expect my interpreter to do their job. Naweeb told me that the police officers were telling him, when we catch you away from the American, we're going to cut your lips off. This is a 12 year old boy. You know, between the between the Taliban infiltrating the police and the military, between the lack of education and between the corruption, good Lord, it is just absolutely brutal. Right. And we tried, we tried. Yeah, so Richard, one last thing. So first of all, let me just acknowledge, so many of our weapons are gone to the Taliban now. We we wound up arming the Taliban instead of the Afghan military. And so it's our money gone, it's a, although again, the defense contractors got rich off that. But and now some of the worst folks on earth have high weaponry because of us. But anyways, I did wanna ask you one last thing, which is local support for the Taliban. I know it's hard for you to gauge it and you've got the interpreters, etc. But I'm curious what your take was, did you, it seems like the military partly collapsed because they don't have local support and they never really were gonna fight. And the Taliban do have local support. But again, from the outside, it's really hard to tell. So what was your sense of it? You know, I, you know, that's one of the reasons why when I was in Afghanistan, I mean, I, I, I was different. I wasn't like most people. I didn't have a company, I didn't have a platoon, I didn't have, I didn't have a squad, I would go out and literally be 100 miles away from the nearest American. With me, my sergeant first class, I had an E6 that was a mechanic and our interpreter. And we would be out there. We could never call a police station and say, hey, we're coming tomorrow. Because we could not trust anybody in that police station to not sell us out to the Taliban. You know, we operated everywhere and we literally, I mean, we were almost captured in a place called Eshpeshta. Uh, we were literally five minutes away from 60 Taliban fighters snatching us up. Uh, and you know, I like to think that we would have fought to the death. But I mean, I mean, we literally were almost captured. It's it's just so hard over there because you really, it's hard to know who to trust. It is it is a, it's it's just it's hard to even be able to 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 paint a picture for people. Yeah, all right, we, we got to run, but I, I want to talk to you more about this. And everybody, check out Richard's videos on Rebel HQ because I mean, he obviously knows exactly what happened over there from his perspective and the perspective of so many other American service members that were there. So, Richard, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it, brother. Anytime, Jake. I'll see you. I'll see you in California next month.